All right, great. So back again now with Hegel. This episode is going to cover the chapters self-consciousness and reason, including all the subchapters in there. So what I'm going to do is add in the uh, in the description timestamps for each of those chapters and then each of the little subchapters. That's because, you know, if you only have to read one section for like a class or something, you know, you can jump right to it. You don't have to worry about listening to the whole thing, even though you probably should. Now, before we jump into it, a few things to say. You can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy, plus uh, Podbean for people that are interested in this in podcast form or on iTunes, probably Apple Podcasts. No, well, that's what that is, but um, also probably Google Play and um, any kind of Android app uh, podcast thing. You find me on there. Um, as well, my Patreon is up there for anyone that can contribute to that. That would be great, but for now, because we got a lot to cover, let's just jump right into it. So what this episode is going to do is move through a number of the phases that Hegel presents. Now, where this is going to arrive at is the developed form of the nation or the community, which is really the topic of the, the discussion for the next uh, episode, which would be the next chapter, uh, Spirit. But the reason I'm saying this is because if you plan on reading this or even by listening to it, it's very difficult to situate why Hegel is telling us all of these things he's telling us. Because it just seems like he's saying, well, this is not what spirit is, and this is not what spirit is, and this is not what spirit is. And so it can get really confusing, and I found myself at one point saying, like, well, why are you even telling me this then if it isn't important? But as it turns out, or will turn out, everything that he develops is incredibly important because they are, in a sense, successive phases that move us toward this thing called spirit, or eventually to absolute spirit. So the first subsection of the first subchapter of uh, self-consciousness is titled The Truth of Self-Certainty. So here he immediately presents us with a kind of recap of what we went over in the first uh, episode. That is the three broad phases, that is sense certainty, perception, and then understanding. So without going into a big recap because we're really short on time, he says that or he has shown that these three things are not in and of themselves sufficient to understanding what experience is, nor what experience allows. Because if you just have engagement with things exterior to yourself that you see as having, you know, basic properties, then you don't have an engagement with them that recognizes their own autonomy outside of you and has their own degree of self-reflection, self-consciousness. So it is important then to arrive at what he kind of calls the truth of the object, which we can only arrive at through experience. So this is important because if we just lived in a world where everything that we perceived exterior to us was its own closed off, detached system, we would have no way of actually engaging with it through experience. So there must be some kind of bridge, and that bridge is the similarity of self-consciousness, which will eventually lead to an understanding of how community should function but for now, it kind of makes sense because if something was totally alien, we would not have a point of contact there. We wouldn't have any way to understand it. So by recognizing a similarity between, you know, ourself, each individual self, or the person he calls into question in this chapter, the phenomenological observer, that is, in a sense, the reader of the book, who's, you know, able to then look back and reflect on their own life and say, wow, 
I have attained my identity, my sensehood of who I am, not by virtue of me as Descartes did, you know, sat alone in a room and was able to say, to do away with all illusions. Uh, no, by being among others, being among things that have their own autonomy. So it's in that way that this idea of being for self and being for another or being in itself are actually, in a sense, the same thing. Because we cannot be a self without being for another, without being out there for another. And the same applies to everything else out there. So in his words, the definition then of self-consciousness is the reflection out of the being of the world of sense and perception and is essentially the return from otherness. And that's in my version, probably your version too, on uh, 105. And it is, it is through this self-consciousness that we get out of a lifeless lack of movement that was presented in the first episode. Because that lifeless lack of movement happens when, you know, you are totally uh, exterior to everything. You're totally excluded, alienated from everything else. And the implications for this are really quite massive. If we think of, you know, things like, uh, you know, community activism, or even if it comes down to maybe romantic partners uh, that someone might have, uh, where there's a, there has to be a give and take for there to be a certain degree of connection there. Connection does not come from doing away with oneself in favor of the relationship, qua relationship. It comes about by recognizing the relative autonomy of each person. But we're going to, in the next episode, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But for now, to just kind of sketch it briefly, that's kind of like what we're, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Now with this, we're starting to see the roots of what we know as spirit. So spirit is that kind of realization, the actuality, the being in the world, the reality of um, this dynamic between individuals that have the capacity for self-consciousness that arrives not by them in isolation, through them in isolation, but through them among others. So here we're seeing the groundwork for that being set up. So in his words, he says that spirit enters the scene essentially when there is a unity of the different independent self-consciousnesses, which in their opposition, enjoy perfect freedom and independence when the I that is we and the we that is I. Now this pushes us into the next subchapter, and this is probably of the most interest to people uh, getting into Hegel. Because this is where we get into what is called, for reasons I don't understand, the master-slave dialectic. Those words are not present here. It is instead lord and bondsman, or, or uh, the lord and, um, and bondage, sorry, lordship and bondage. So the title of this subchapter is Independence and Dependence of Self-Consciousness, colon, Lordship and Bondage. So the whole master-slave thing is a bit of a misnomer because when we're talking about bondage, while there are similarities between a quote-unquote slave and, and someone, a bondsman or someone under bondage, there are differences. So the person under bondage um, has not been like, at the time, forcefully put in that position through like maybe war or something. They might be someone that owe a debt. Uh, they might be someone that is in need of some kind of land to work on and can only do it by working for someone else, effectively selling their labor to just live and exist on a certain piece of land. Uh, so they're very much like a serf in that way. So while, 
you know, the point would get across by using the other uh, dialectic, the master-slave one. I think it's important to know that that term isn't used here, at least not by Hegel. So the Lord and the bondsman each have two different definitions in terms of Hegel's project here. He says that the Lord is the person that has an independent consciousness whose essential nature is to be for itself. Whereas for the bondsman, for the person under bondage, they are a dependent consciousness whose essential nature is simply to live or to be for another. So the Lord is that person that exists purely in themselves. They see themselves as being the world, essentially, and anyone that comes in contact with them is beneath recognition, right? So the, the serf or the bondsman or the slave is someone that is beneath recognition. Whereas for the other person, the bondsman, they see their entire existence within the master, within the Lord. They see themselves there. They want to be that. And they want everything that that person can give for them to receive that. Now, what happens here is that the Lord takes on the kind of semblance of being essential. They are pure. They are essential. They are what make all of, let me, let me say quite uh, brazenly, they make reality possible because they set the stage for what people can know, what people can, are, uh, can have, what people should want, you know, so on and so forth, how people should act. Whereas the bondsman is someone who is unessential. They are simply, they gravitate around the center that is the Lord. They are planets that can fly outside of that kind of gravitational field, and it will not affect the cosmos. It will not affect that dynamic between Lord and all the serfs or, or bondsmen. Now, what happens here? What, why is Hegel talking about this? Well, he says that the Lord is the person that is lifeless because they see themselves as being totally detached. Where Hegel sees a kind of validity, a kind of potential behind being you know, a bondsman, because there is a recognition of an other that is exterior to yourself that you can learn from, you can adopt to, adapt to, you can, um, you can essentially, well, that does satisfy that definition, uh, can do all of those things, which for Hegel allows that bondsman to develop, to change, to have an exteriority to themselves that they can move into. Whereas the, uh, the Lord is, is stagnant. They are frozen. Now, for Hegel, what that does is it actually reverses it. It reverses what we just presented. So in this moment, because now the privilege is found within the bondsman, in this moment, the bondsman now becomes what is essential because the ultimate goal is spirit that is recognizing otherness as, you know, its own individual thing. Because that is the end goal, and that is kind of the, the eye on the having our eye on the prize, Hegel privileges the essential character of the bondsman as being the person that recognizes another, whereas the Lord is someone who is now unessential. They are they are the people that are holding essentially world history back because they're trying to keep things in a state of equilibrium that doesn't move. It's just pure stagnation. Now, the same operation comes out in another way. So the image we might have of a bondsman is someone that might work in the fields, 
someone that might till the soil, someone that might, you know, grow crops or, or whatever. Hegel says that in this movement or in these actions, there's something very special occurring. And that is that the bondsman not only recognizes another in the form of the uh, Lord that we've already described, they recognize an other that they can respect, appreciate, learn from in terms of the, I guess, inanimate earth. Earth, uh, objects, growth, organic life, and inorganic life that exists all around us. So there's a kind of possibility afforded with that or through that. Whereas for the Lord, everything that is exterior to them is fleeting and unessential, and therefore they cannot learn anything from it or from anything in the exterior world. Now, it should be noted that Hegel doesn't want us to just think that just by virtue of two people being in this kind of dynamic, does this movement come about? Hegel says that there is an added ingredient necessary, and that ingredient is what he calls absolute fear. Now, absolute fear is that fear of losing yourself. It's the fear that is present when you put your life into play. So the bondsman is the one that does this. They put their life into play in relation to uh, the, the Lord. And it is through that that they experience a kind of development. They actually remove themselves from themselves in doing that, which gives them a radical potential for newness. Whereas the uh, Lord, who never gives their life over, who never puts their life into play, is kept solid, is kept um, is galvanized, concretized, without movement. Now here that propels us into the next subchapter titled Freedom of Self-Consciousness. Now chances are, if you're reading this book or have a copy of it, uh, you have the same one as me, which is the one that was uh, translated by A.V. Miller and actually has a kind of breakdown, uh, a summary of the entire text at the back by J.N. Finley. So I've been using that to help a little bit, but to be very honest, it's not always that helpful, the uh, kind of description at the back. But there is one part here that I want to read. And the reason I want to read it is because in this section, this subchapter, we're going to be talking about skepticism, stoicism, and what is called the unhappy consciousness. Now, I think that it's important to give a brief summary of what those things are beforehand, and I find that J.N. Finley does a pretty good job at that. So I want to read a small little section to kind of set the stage for what we'll talk about. So this is on page 527 in my version. So J.N. Finley writes, Hegel's three exemplary states of stoicism, skepticism, and the unhappy consciousness need not be given the philosophical or religious content that he gives them. So he's saying here he's going to give us another uh, metaphor to kind of understand them or kind of analogy. He says, one might, for instance, illustrate them by A, the empty self-satisfaction of a mechanist, mechanist, God, who believes that all organic and psychic life uh, psychic action can be mechanically explained without attempting to show how this is possible. Now through stoicism, the equally empty self-satisfaction of a theoretical mechanist who also believes that it will never be actually possible to give an adequate explanation of organic and psychic life action in mechanic terms, or who thinks that a non-mechanistic explanation is equally feasible, or C, and this is the unhappy consciousness, the tormented state of one who believes that a mechanistic explanation of life and consciousness is possible 
but despairs of ever finding it, who always dreams of an unattainable mechanistic explanation, who always treats non-mechanistic explanations as pisale for mechanistic ones, and who drags in the priestly scientist to validate his philosophical and moral opinions. So let me just reiterate what Finley said there, and then we'll get into it. So we have our three states, stoicism, skepticism, and the unhappy consciousness. J.N. Finley says that stoicism is the form of person or the state in which someone says, I can only be sure of myself, anything that can be explained in the world, or even of my psychic uh, capacities, if I am to reflect upon them, is beyond my reach. Therefore, I'm just going to remain with what I have. The skeptic is someone who says, maybe there is an explanation out there, but I'm never going to find out. Whereas the Stoic says there probably isn't one. Uh, and then finally, the unhappy consciousness is someone who knows that explanation is out there, but without having the tools to figure it out, relies upon fanciful explanations, kind of abstract ones that don't actually get at the heart of the matter. So they are kind of led astray into maybe sophistry or illusion. Now let's move through each one specifically, starting with Stoicism. So prior to Hegel, Hegel says that uh, it was believed that freedom of self-consciousness, so self-consciousness being able to look upon oneself, was the hallmark of Stoicism. Now we might think of the Stoic as, you know, the person sitting alone, just like trying to ponder their own selfness, which seems like an, a decent image of this self-consciousness, to which Hegel says, wait a second, wait a second. The problem that he says with that is that it subordinates what is exterior to the self and says, everything out there, it's not really important. What, what is important is that I am working this operation of self-reflection. Now, Immanuel Kant did something very similar when he critiqued Descartes. So Descartes' famous phrase, I think therefore I am, Kant took to task. Because Kant said, well, how can you claim to think unless you have some kind of connection with experience, with a world in which you have learned to think, but you've learned to think with concepts that you've acquired from the world. So it's incredibly naive to think that you can just separate yourself from it and be this totally alienated self. So that's, in a sense, what Hegel is doing here with Stoicism. So at best, what this sto what Stoicism allows is for a kind of illusion of freedom, a kind of illusion of self-consciousness that doesn't give us what Hegel calls the actual living reality of freedom. Now, skepticism, which is the next state, uh, is for Hegel a little bit more interesting because it doesn't just outright shut out the world. It says, you know what, this world is uh, kind of beyond my reach. And so therefore, what is the point? At best, I can only maintain a distance from it by its constant refusal, which obviously demands some degree of engagement with it, as opposed to the stoic that just says, I can totally remove myself. The skeptic always tries to uh, revitalize the fact that the exterior world cannot be properly understood, or, you know, even the psychic uh, capacities cannot be properly understood. And it is through this that it is left bewildered or childlike in Hegel's terms. Um, 
because it doesn't have the capacity to learn and grow from the exterior world. It just completely or continually shuts it out. And so the skeptic kind of has a dual nature. They kind of develop through this a dual nature in themselves where they are, you know, uh, confident in themselves yet at the same time not confident because they are not confident about that position of the self within a world that they've already come to question. Now here we see emerge the unhappy consciousness. Now the unhappy consciousness is tricky to explain, but I'm going to try and do my best here. The unhappy, unhappy consciousness is the person that embraces this kind of unknowing. So they are confronted now. They see themselves as being an individual in a world that they can't understand. Yet, they accept that they have some kind of connection to that world through their thinking it. Where that world is out there, I, you know, it can't be understood. Uh, at best, maybe we can rely upon some other foundations to give ourselves meaning. Now, what this does is it positions thought as being a kind of pure activity that, or universal activity that everyone engages in, in contrast to the individual experience within a world that can't be understood that which cannot be known. So there's a tension then, because the unhappy consciousness has embedded within it both what it can know and what it cannot know, which produces this un kind of unhappy consciousness state because they don't know which one they really are. So in trying to kind of develop a universality in experience, in the world, in its kind of individual character, what it does is it, rely upon, it relies upon uh, work and desire which for it apparently would give the kind of semblance of a universality. For we all must work, we all must desire, we all must exist in this kind of, uh, you know, flesh-like state that we are in. Therefore, we can draw this connection. Whereas for Hegel, he says, in fact, what that does is just drive you further into a certain degree of variability, to a certain degree of individuality, because we haven't fully understood what, is, what it is that connects us. We've only done it superficially. We haven't negated the negation, as, you know, he presented in the first uh, few chapters. So it can only ever be unhappy because it can never be satisfied with itself because it sees itself as being unchangeably unhappy, but then every time it tries to figure out the world a little more, it makes itself uh, changeable, which then makes it unhappy again. So there's like this continually... Uh, if, um, I guess, regressive process that occurs in the act of trying to reconcile that universality, that kind of thing that brings something together under the banner of spirit or self-consciousness or absolute spirit, as we'll get to. Now, Hegel prescribes the unhappy consciousness a few different actions to get out of that state. And this is on 137. He says, through these moments of surrender, first of its right to decide for itself, that is the unhappy consciousness, then of its property and enjoyment, and finally through the positive moment of practicing what it does not understand, it truly and completely deprives itself of the consciousness of inner and outer freedom, of the actuality in which consciousness exists for itself. It has the certainty of having truly divested itself of its I, and of having turned its immediate self-consciousness into a thing, into an objective existence. Only through this actual sacrifice could it demonstrate this self-renunciation, for only therein does the deception vanish, which lies in the inner acknowledgement of gratitude through heart, sentiment, and tongue, an acknowledgement which indeed disclaims all power pertaining to it, 
to its own independent existence, ascribing it all to a gift from above, but which in this very disclaimer holds on to its own particular existence, does so outwardly in the possessions it does not surrender, inwardly in the consciousness of the decision it has itself made. Oh, it's a long way to, that's how he deals with it. Okay, so now we're going to jump into the next chapter titled Reason. So in this chapter, we're going to be moving through a number of different things that where we could get, or a number of different ways we can get led astray when thinking about spirit, when arriving toward or trying to identify the movement of spirit in the organic world or in desire or in um, the kind of spiritual world, which we'll move through one by one uh, to show the limits of each. So through this kind of renunciation of the unhappy consciousness, consciousness has taken upon itself a kind of reasonable attitude. It has become reason in a sense that is able to say through kind of self-consciousness that, hey, I am not satisfied with this way by which I arrive at being. I arrive at actuality. I arrive at uh, kind of self-conscious actuality in the world. Therefore, you know, I must do X, Y, and Z things to get out of it, the things he just prescribed. So this gives self-consciousness or consciousness the kind of uh, immediate resemblance of reason. So it has now the capacity to be the phenomenological observer and to reflect on things in the world, on its own experience in the world, and so on. Now what this has also done is disturb the assumed split between you know self and world, because now we're starting to see similarities between the two. We are recognizing the autonomy of the other, the autonomy of the world, that we see reflected in ourself and us in it. Now I should say, because I don't want you to be confused, this is not like the completed um, system at all. The problem with this so far is still that reason, although it has this capacity and it acts this out, it doesn't understand why it has this capacity. It doesn't understand that other things necessarily have this particular self-reflective capacity. But, you know, that's just saying that for now. So I want to read a short little uh, sentence here from later on in the next chapter where he kind of outlines what reason is to spirit. Uh, so... But as immediate consciousness of the being that is in and for itself, as unity of consciousness and self-consciousness, spirit is consciousness that has reason. Okay, So it is consciousness which, as the word has indicates, has the object in a shape which is implicitly determined by reason or by the value of the category, but in such a way that it does not as yet have for consciousness the value of the category. So there we, we see it, we're, it's starting to flourish, starting to flourish. And that's, by the way, from 264 to 265, what I just read. So one of the ways that reason gets uh, led astray is because it doesn't pay enough attention to itself. It does not reflect back upon itself. It's like, okay, I'm going to go out in, in nature because I, I've now learned the world, through the world I can learn a lot. Uh, I'm going to go out into nature uh, and through my dealings with nature what, and what I observe, I will be able to recognize or find out truths about ourself, about, you know, humans, I will say. So that puts us here into the first subchapter, uh, observing reason. So I should say, in addition to observing reason, there are two other subchapters. 
and each of them are broken down into a number of other little subchapters in themselves, sub-subchapters. So within the chapter reason that we're dealing with here, we have observing reason as the first subchapter. We have the actualization of a rational self-consciousness through its own activity as the second subchapter. And finally, we have individuality which takes itself to be real in and for itself as the third subchapter. So I'll, I'll put the time steps up for each of those, probably not for each of those, their subchapters because they're so tiny um, and there's so many of them but here um, let's do it let's do it now again we're still in observing reason here but now we're in the first section of that titled observation of nature now what he's trying to show here is that no investigation of nature take an empirical kind of investigation of nature can reveal fundamental truths for us because we only really find all of these wild differences in nature. There's no ultimate truth in nature. There's only a bunch of different realities that we kind of naively clump together under, you know, species and, and genuses or genii or genie, whatever, uh, that, you know, gives us a sense of comfort, but doesn't actually give us, a, you know, fundamental truths. And he's going to go on to explain that. So when we do this, when we try to explain all things with like, you know, universal truths or something, what we end up doing is only giving specific descriptions of objects. And so we never become satisfied because we quickly learn that, oh, wow, that person over there doesn't have the same experience of the, the world. What the hell? Like, I thought, I thought, like, I discovered the truth of the thing. How can you claim that there is someone else experiencing it differently than I, the wonderful center of the world? Now, what reason tries to do, because it's never satisfied with just saying, oh, yeah, I guess the jig's up. I guess I'm screwed. It instead tries to look for the law and the notion of the particular determinateness of a given thing or things. So I believe I mentioned in the first chapter that the first episode that notion could also have been translated into the term concept, which helped me understand it better. Uh, so notion just being the kind of, what I will say, a kind of umbrella thing that connects disparate things as under the uh, umbrella of a concept, which we will find we cannot actually do here because things are totally separate. So for reason, to find law and notion is to find what he calls the certainty of possessing reality, which would therefore uh, be the knowledge of consciousness of the world, which is, uh, it sounds all well and good, but is it possible? So let's take gravity as an example, where we know of a law that is gravity, where if we take, if I take my pen and, and drop it, I know that it's going to fall to the earth. Now, does that mean all things are going to fall to the earth when I drop them? Yes, but as a law, I only know of individual things that are going to fall to the earth because gravity is the law, the thing we don't see. We only see it when it happens in these particular uh, experiences where it happens enough and we're able to say, okay, there must be this kind of uh, causality, this kind of connection between gravity and, and things that have mass. Now, they, I'm only able to draw connections between things, that is, between the pen that falls and the book that falls and the, you know, the leaf that falls, even though these things are very different, uh, I am able to draw the connection that they will all fall 
because I have now subsumed them under the notion that is the thing that connects all of these seemingly disparate things. So the law then only really becomes true for us once for Hegel it becomes the notion, the thing that we can understand then beyond the particular instances. So, all right, we, we see this with gravity. All right, David, we get it. We, we understand what you're saying. How does this relate then to organic or inorganic life? So organic life being like animals, maybe plants. I don't know if plants falls into his system here. Uh, but he says that inorganic nature deals with like air, water, and earth, which exist on their own account. Now that's going to come to work into what he understands as being the world, as being a, a pure individuality uh, to some extent. But for now, we know inorganic nature to be air, water, and earth, which he says exist on their own account, and that's on 155. Uh, and this inorganic nature, he says, has a freedom opposed to the simple notion of organic nature. So what is organic nature? He says organic nature is, despite its appearance of being free and independent, are actually essentially connected. So he gives us an example. Uh, animals in the north have, you know, north is a pretty relative term, but in colder climates have bigger, uh, more fur, have tougher pelts. Now he says that then that tells us that what we take to be organic, that is the thing we might assume to be free, having, you know, its own autonomy, we don't think of Earth being able to move around and experience the world, uh, where he's trying to reverse that. And he says, well, inorgan or organic life seems to be very much determined by, you know, exterior circumstances. So we can't just say that there's this autonomous being existing in a world that is non-autonomous, it is actually the other way around. So what happens then is that we start to trouble the idea of a law. That is a law that can be found to uh, consistent across different things. Because we've already shown that the law is not imminent. Imminent, that is within the thing. Uh, it instead might come from exterior. So animals in the north have, have bigger pelts. Where if we take the animal outside of that setting over enough time, their pelts will thin out. You know, this is just evolution, right? And then by virtue of that, what we once assumed to be the universal law now is like, is called into question. So then we are conflicted. So reason, because it's not satisfied and just letting go of it, says, okay, well, what is common is that, you know, humans are like relative. They, they or organic life like develops and changes. That is the principle of it. To which Hegel says, well, to only arrive at that conclusion you must adopt picture thinking as being, you know, prime fascia, the way by which you engage with the world. So you don't see it as a set of sequences that might be connected to one another, which would, you know, Hegel would obviously like, thinking about his dialectical approach in terms of history. But instead, this approach says we can only learn something by, you know, consuming every single moment almost in the picture form, every single thing as it is in that time. And if we, you know, accrue enough or kind of uh, accumulate enough, enough data, we might be able to tell something about the world then. To which Hegel says that that's a, you're not going to get anywhere with that because it's just going give to give you all this data that you won't have anything to do with. 
So then we arrive at, you know, different excuses saying like, oh, well, yeah, sure, we're only going to see this kind of exteriority in its uh, immediacy, it's these kind of moments. But we know now that the exterior is the reflection of the interior. So we can actually learn about the truth by engaging, by just seeing this exterior thing out in the world in this picture form and then, you know, deducing from it what is common or what is true to it and that makes it common among other things. So what we see then is the actualization. Actualization is in, in these terms, what is immediately present outwardly for an observer. Uh, so now once we've accepted this, that okay, we can only see the thing in, ex in its exteriority, in its actuality, uh, Hegel further breaks down how that thing is characterized. So it is characterized as either uh, belonging to sensibility, irritability, or reproduction. And these kind of manifest themselves in subjects whose end is its own self. That is, at this point, we still only see things as being totally detached on their own, but we recognize that they are understandable, they are graspable. So sensibility, because right we, here we have sensibility, irritability, and reproduction, Sensibility for him expresses, quote, the simple notion of organic reflection into self or the universal fluidity of this notion. Irritability expresses organic elasticity, the capacity of the organism to react at the same time that it is reflected into itself. And then this is where the subject is also being for another uh, because they are affected by, you know, another. They are ir irritated, right? They, they are directly affected by another. And then thirdly and finally, we have reproduction, which is when uh, the activity of the thing is itself an end or a genus in which the individual repels itself from itself and in the procreative act reproduces either its organic members or the whole individual. So for reason, it tries to make more sense of these three outward-facing you know, uh, moments or actions, that is sensibility, irritability, or reproduction, by attaching them to kind of, quote-unquote, real attributes of the human. So it says sensibility, let us say, as a nervous system, irritability as a muscular system, and reproduction as a visceral system for the preservation of the individual and the species. Now, this is just a strategy to kind of attach it to something that we've already accepted is real. But Hegel says is no, 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 ha, 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 we are not quite there yet. And the reason for that is that these three things, unlike the muscular system opposed to the, you know, nervous system, aren't really separated. Because Hegel says that or irritability cannot occur unless there is sensibility, unless the thing can have experience in the world. So we need both, and they must all be working. It is not as though we see a thing and we're like, oh, that is an irritable thing or that is a sensible thing. And, you know, we're able to taxonomize. That is, we're able to break it up into or categorize it. Uh, instead, we then must come face to face with the fact that these, these terms are not quite so neat. So what actually happens here is we just find ourselves back at stage one with understanding perceptual and perception and sense certainty because we're only engaging with this thing on the surface. We are not actually getting at the heart of it.
And with this, all things are reduced to a kind of quantitative enterprise. Like they can be understood purely quantitatively, where we can list off attributes of things and claim that this is what connects them or something, where Hegel's like, no, 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 that doesn't actually tell us anything about uh, the thing. And what it does, you know, in addition, is it enforces a split between outer, that is, you know, the being for another, what you put yourself out there, what, what is put out there for another to contemplate and see, uh, and a split between that and the being for self, that inner, that is purely for itself. Where Hegel says, no, because whenever there is something that comes in contact with something else, you are coming in contact with both. It's being for self and being for another because those things are the same in a kind of in, in absolute spirit. And that if we take this far enough, we come to see that everything is simply determined then by the earth, if that is indeed what we're doing here, that is finding all these properties, what constitutes them, and so on, we just end up at this final thing called the earth that is totally unsatisfactory. That is, and it shows that all of these things are essentially without history. They are just always determined in that instance by uh, the earth. They do not have their own autonomy. Now this propels us into the second sub-sub-chapter. We're still under observing reason here, by the way. Uh, and I'm not going to timestamp this one because there's really no point. But this is an observation of self-consciousness. And again, because we're still working within the kind of language of observation, we are only caught, we still are caught within the realm of the particular. So we cannot derive any kind of laws or notions that will encapsulate everything, that will give us some kind of purchase on a truth that we can then move through. And this isn't to say that Hegel thinks there is that truth out there and that we just need to do more of this to arrive there. He's suspicious about that whole drive towards truth in itself because he doesn't see there being like an end point. Like, oh, the project's done. We can just sit back now and chill. He, he's like, no, this is always going to be happening. We always need to be moving. So now with this section, we're moving away from you know, the exterior world, and now we're trying to find, or reason is trying to find, laws of thought. But of course, and I, you know, he essentially does the exact same operation here, but he essentially says all we are left with if we try to find laws of thought are these particulars, or what he calls single vanishing mov moments on page 181. So for example, what, how we might could understand that now is like the psych psychology today. Not, not the magazine, but psychology as it exists today, because uh, we think of like the DSM, and it has all of these different you know, ways to understand the mind, all of these different disorders, all of these different issues that can be present in the mind that we could say are like in themselves, they might be individual truths, but each, the presence of each of them disturbs the truth of another. So we think that if we just kind of accumulate enough of these definitions, enough of these, uh, you know, truths, we might arrive at the total truth, when in fact, for Hegel, and I think he's dead right, we are just giving ourselves more kind of fake truths that pass themselves off as truths. And now that, because that's really all he says, uh, it propels us here into the third subchapter of Observing Reason, titled Observation of Self-Consciousness to Its Immediate Reality. So now we're going to move from 
observing nature out in the world, inorganic and organic nature, move from that, move from the mind, and now we're going to think about the individual as, you know, in a sense of physical entity, uh, uh, the individual qua individual. So the individual we find through this observation, uh, a movement of consciousness in contrast to a fixed being of an appearing actuality. So we have what is going on in the inside, a kind of fluidity that comes into contact with uh, a galvanized outsideness, their actuality, their being that, that everyone can see, uh, that is uh, kind of galvanized, that is concretized in picture form. And like in observing nature, uh, the outer is taken as an organ in making the inner visible, right? So we think that if we look at the outside, we can learn about the inside. And that's on 187 where he says that. But then we're presented with the same problem because then we claim that these this exterior, which is we've already shown to be totally different for everyone, because we say it's a direct sign of the interior, what we then come to realize is that this thing that we thought was the truth, the interior, is then just the particular, like the outside, the thing that is different for everyone that we take to be a solid individual thing, just comes to make that inner thing that individual itself, just purely on its own. So the the study then would, that he's calling attention to is physiognomy, or physi, physiognomy, 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 uh, that essentially claims to find the true exterior organs that tell us about, you know, our, ourselves. So one example is like how skull sizes, and this is something Hegel draws upon, skull sizes were meant to tell people about themselves. Or maybe like palm readers could be one example here. And I don't want to like disparage anything uh, pertaining to that, or like astrology or anything. But for Hegel, there's a problem there because it reduces who you are to how you are on the outside, right? And he's like, well, what is what that is doing is reducing you to what you are for another, not what you are for yourself. So the phrenologist that he, you know, calls attention to, the person that looks at the brain, the skull, and is able to say, you know, you are X, Y, and Z person because of the skull. Uh, he says Hegel says that that's essentially a joke, because the skull is indifferent to spirit or to the the organic movement between being for self and being for uh, another because the skull is affected by all these other things the skull is like just gives itself over to anything now here we'll move into the uh not the next sub sub chapter but the next sub chapter so we're leaving observing reason now and now we're into actualization of a rational self-consciousness through its own activity so here we're moving beyond reason into universal reason. So we're, we're developing, we're moving here. And like I said at the beginning, you might be like, well, why are we even talking about this if it's not important? Well, in a sense, we have to see what's wrong or what doesn't work before we can figure out what does work. At least I think that's what Hegel was, at least that's what his mindset was like or what he hoped to do. So here, uh, reason, in its kind of form as self-consciousness, comes to see itself in the thing, not as an external thing all on its own. It actually recognizes a similarity with the thing. So here we arrive at what is called universal reason. So this is the moment that this self-consciousness can be observed in the other. So the other is just not a thing out there that is for us to observe. 
It has its own autonomy. It is observing itself and it is observing us. And here we see the emergence, and this is really important, of ethical life. Because we now find the kind of shimmerings of a, a connection between people that can open up questions of what is right and what is wrong. Because if it's just pure individuality, you don't have those questions being asked. Now we enter, or that possibility enters at least. And he gives this wonderful analogy. He's like, in this moment, humans kind of give, them, give themselves up. They give up their perfect individuality to be part of a greater whole. So like stars in the sky that all look the same, but that each shine on their own in, a very, in their own beautiful way. And it is in this situation that he writes that the labor of the individual for his own needs is just as much a satisfaction of the needs of others as of his own. Now, this happens most fully in something like a community or nation or some higher purpose around which humans can uh, coordinate themselves, can organize. So that the quote I just read was from 2.13. So this, and we're getting a sneak peek here, this is universal spirit where individual is as certain of the others as he is of himself. Again, on 2.13. Now, this is, presents a problem for the individual, however. And Hegel, I think, is really smart about this. He says, okay, well, if spirit is that movement of individuals, then what happens when individuals stop seeing that happening? So they, in giving their labor over, start thinking, wow, why am I doing this for someone else? Like, what about myself? So there's a tension that emerges here when we are not at a sufficient stage in the development of spirit, when it's just like forcing individuals together to work, you know, to be among one another without them having the proper, I guess, primer to get into that situation. So in a sense, this is necessary because it maintains that individual quality and takes us out of uh, kind of totally locating spirit within, you know, a specific nationhood, a specific group identity, a specific set of laws, and allows them to keep moving and developing alongside the individual. But we still aren't quite there yet, because there's still some problems we got to work through. And here we enter into new sub-sub-chapters under this uh, second sub-chapter. This one titled Pleasure and Necessity, which is pretty interesting. So in turning away from the nation here, or this community, the individual is then turned on to the actuality or the spirit of the earth, which is what Hegel calls this, uh, where its actuality in individuals is the, quote, the actuality of the individual consciousness. Because it, as we mentioned earlier, the, the earth is that kind of pure individual that ostensibly determined everything, right? It was the plane upon which things attain their status. Like animals in the north have bigger pelts. That is determined by characteristic on the earth. Now, because of this, we've dropped no, uh, the nation, we've dropped laws, we've dropped like truths in favor of all these individual moments, uh, which have, in a sense, gotten rid of all the abstractions of science, laws, and principles, which have uh, vanished in favor of the certainty of one's own or its own reality. So the individual then is going purely after what they want, pleasure. They're going purely after um, what makes them happy? So there's some contention here, and uh, it depends, you know, if you're looking for other explanations of this on online, 
you will get very different answers. Um, but I don't think that pleasure has to be thought of in any narrow way. So we don't need to say pleasure is like sexual pleasure. We don't need to say pleasure is the pleasure that is that comes out of a certain self-recognition, a kind of um, a virtuous uh, uh, motivation or a kind of virtue, recognition of virtue within oneself, the attainment of virtuousness or anything like that. I think it could be both, and I think it could be any other thing that can be quite simply reduced to what an individual wants for themselves. Quite simply, full stop. And you could get into the nitty gritty and like Hegel. There's this one sentence when it seems pretty clear that he's just talking about like physical pleasure, and another one when he's talking about you know virtue or talking about ethics in some in some fashion. But for what I'm doing here, it'd be too much like th that requires its own essay. So for now, let's just take it as a very broad thing. Anything that an individual wants for themselves. Now that takes them, as I've already said, outside of the community, outside of the universal, into their own being, their own wants, their own necessities and pleasures. But interestingly, what that does is, well, if everyone does that, then we have a new universality emerge the universality of everyone wanting their own stuff, everyone wanting their own identity within themselves. And when that happens, the individuality that we assumed then vanishes because if everyone is an individual, you know, the old moniker, if everyone's an individual, then no one is. In very much the same way, that can be said to occur. So to kind of put a maybe a vulgar example, you know, take... Um, uh, this is really terrible, but like take materialism. People think, you know, your identity comes from what you buy and everyone wants their own stuff. When we know now that that is not where identity comes from, that is not who you are. That is, you know, simply what you want. And you actually stop being an individual when you totally give yourself over to these kind of basic, maybe superficial uh, wants. Now this pleasure, what it does is it uh, reduces recognition because it, it essentially turns experience into a simple, single feeling, not something lasting that, you know, a history can emerge from or, you know, movement can come out of. Yeah. So then that puts us into the next sub-sub-chapter here, titled The Law of the Heart and Frenzy of Self-Conceit. So this law of the heart is that individual... You know, the individual coming to terms with what they want, which contrasts with the violent ordering of the world, in Hegel's words. So this law of the heart essentially moves beyond identification with, a, with single moments, as was the case in pleasure, as I just identified, to a more broad project opposing, um, opposing the violent ordering of the world. So now we are seeing a kind of galvanization of an identity through this refusal, so as it was just with pleasure, it was a pure like separated individuality that opposed everything except what it wanted itself. Now we are seeing an identity of that emerge. So it becomes its own kind of selfness. And here another way we could understand this is like it is the law of the, the heart versus the law of reality, which maybe for those versed in kind of psychoanalytic terms, this could be understood as, you know, the pleasure principle versus the reality principle. 
and I know they're not the exact same, but like, in a sense, it encapsulates the same idea because you have what one wants versus what one is told they are, are mandated what they are allowed to want. Now, what this does, and this is, this is a wild book. Um, what this does is it creates another tension because let's say I have my own law of the heart and I'm like, I have to foster this because this is what I want. I can only do that by orchestrating something of a sufficient system that is capable of allowing that. Now, naturally, that is going to come into conflict with other people's own laws of their heart. So what I perceive to be a law, you know, a truth, then is troubled by the existence of others coming into contact with that truth. And here we arrive at a kind of all against all, where everyone is at conflict now, not only with the you know, exterior world that is trying to impose upon them its own ideal or the ideals of others, but within oneself, because there's that kind of crisis that emerges from my not being able to recognize my own self, because what I once perceived to be a law, a truth, is now severely troubled. We now enter this dual kind of problem, this dual arrangement that makes us that much more unhappy, kind of hearkening back to that unhappy consciousness. So he says, interestingly enough, that any person in that instance that is able to recognize the kind of perversion of individuality, the kind of impossibility of it, and the problem with anyone recognizing themselves with it, uh, approaches virtue. Now that propels us here into the third sub-subchapter titled Virtue and the Way of the World. And this is just another conflict between virtue, which is taken as like law, versus way of the world, which is like an individual. So for virtuousness, individuality is to be given over to the law where it is allotted its own space and identity. So it's like, oh, you can be free if you agree to follow these set rules, and then you can have all the freedom you want. Now, discipline performs this function. It is the, it de-individualizes while trying to give some individuality. Now, the way of the world, on the other hand, finds its realization in uh, the play of individuality, in the play of individuals in their own search for meaning. Now, both of them, that is virtue and the way of the world, claim to be universal. They both claim to have a kind of full purchase on what the world should be like and for whom the world is meant, which creates a conflict because they are both so sure of themselves. So the illusion that uh, image that um, Hegel sketches is of an army where you have the overarching army, like a, take a battalion, comprised of individuals. So you have virtue being that army, that law, that kind of structure, versus the individuals that comprise it. Now, they will both cease to exist if suddenly the individuals take over the army or the army kills the individuals because they are predicated upon one another. They are exactly what they are only by their being attached where the predicate, you know, an army is comprised of military personnel uh, is absolutely true. It's an apodictic and, you know, military personnel are part of an army where if one combats the other, then they both cease being that. So you cannot have an army exist purely on its own without military personnel, individuals. You can't have military personnel or individuals exist without the army, which is might seem like a weird analogy, but anyways. And that's on 232 or uh, 233. 
So they are both conflicted then, because they both claim this superior position of universality, but neither can actually do it. Now that propels us here into the third subchapter, um, uh, individuality, which takes itself to be real in and for itself. So this is the last subchapter, and then we'll be done. So bear with me a few more minutes, and we're going to get through this. So through these previous movements, what has happened is a recognition of oneself, you know, in, in relation to another that is not all that different from us, like the army and the military personnel. So what that means is that we have now grasped, uh, self-consciousness has now grasped the notion of itself. So now end and essence are, in Hegel's words, the spontaneous interfusion of the universal and of its capacities and individuality. So the mixing here of universality and individuality. So he's moving towards how we can foster these two tensions. How can we develop a system in which these two things can exist? So now there is a recognition that instead of move, moving or instead of observing to kind of see otherness, to, to kind of move ourselves because of an otherness that we've, you know, just homogenized or reduced, now we are curious about even that possibility of observing, that possibility of being self-conscious. So this is kind of like Kant's transcendental method where this is the only thing we can really be sure about because it's the only thing going on. The thing that is without a doubt happening, that is our experience, we must develop a science of that, which is what the book, this is the phenomenology of, of, uh, of, uh, phenomenology of spirit, which is part of his bigger system of dealing with science and where a science can kind of emerge. And in this way, we're dealing with an actual real movement, not an abstraction. So here we're going to get into the first sub-sub-chapter uh, titled The Spiritual Animal, Animal Kingdom and Deceit, or the Matter in Hand Itself. So our task here is to find out how, under this notion, so this notion is the notion of individuality mixed with universality, what room there is for individual moments to kind of emerge. In other words, how can we know that we aren't just being duped? We aren't just being tricked into thinking that we are uh, free to have these individual moments in this universal system. And the answer is precisely, well, to some extent, action. Action is what gives us this ability to reconcile an individuality in a universality, where you recognize that everyone has this propensity for action, that is, it is the universal, and it is through that that we come to the world that is, in a sense, the thing that determines us and that we determine, hence phenomenology, is shaped to our will, and we are shaped by it. So this goes into the three-step process. Um, uh, with action, we alter reality, so that's step number one which means, uh, with, with the means at our disposal, which is step number two, which then shapes reality to our own will, step number three. And that's on 239. Now Hegel presents a problem here where he says, okay, well, if the exterior world is out there, the universal thing that determines us, yet we seem to determine it, what comes first? Does the world come first for us that determines us and then we determine it, or do we always already determine the world? And he says, well, we can get around this problem if we just say that they happen at the exact same moment. 
which is a bit of a cop-out, but anyways, that, that's his answer. If, if we just say they happen at the same moment, then that's it. It's like the chicken and egg emerged at the same time type thing. So having accepted this, that there are all these individuals working on the world, that, and the world that works on them to some extent, we aren't fully moving into an ethical world, into a world in which we can craft some kind of connection amongst ourselves because we're still caught up in a kind of individual framework of, you know, one's own action should produce one's own needs or satisfy one's own needs, but under the common umbrella of uh, the state or nation or community. So in this way, he says that any feeling of exaltation or lamentation or repentance are essentially out of place for they locate an in itself different from the original nature of the individual because that original nature is just like what they are without being within a, a, a social order which is really what is important for Hegel that is the original then the original nature like what is it about individuality that we must foster in this system it isn't like we have to create a system that turns people into individuals it's like how do we shape a system in which individuals can exist qua individuals and of course because we haven't fully developed this system yet it's still still too premature we risk getting rid of the individual because of that because they become subsumed under these broad categories that get rid of that original you know nature but that only really happens if we are stuck in consciousness because consciousness loses itself if it locates itself purely in the work done through action, because then it, it just sees itself as being contingent, as just being the thing produced by the individual. Whereas self-consciousness that is aware, or that should be aware, of that process, that it will be undergoing these contingencies, is able to keep itself going, to maintain a universality, because it knows that those are the operations that are occurring. So this is the, as we mentioned in the first episode, the negation of the negation. So what we once perceived as being the thing that made other things contingent or that separated things or that negated a commonality, we now recognize to be the kind of truth of it. So we now negate, you know, what separates us and we say that that thing that separates us, what was once the negation, is now the thing that brings us together. So we are, we are all individuals because we are not individuals to some extent. Or we are universal in our individuality. In, in our universal individualities, we become another universal. But again, we have to be careful here because this only puts us for Hegel into a kind of abstract form of it. We still haven't yet sketched this as being like real, with real people, you know, tilling the soil and being in this world we are still dealing with spirit, the spiritual realm. We are still uh, not dealing with the truly real substance in his word. And that is because we are still relatively indifferent to the operations that are uh, going on. And that we are only satisfied here, we're, we're totally content with the matter in hand. You know, what is immediately present to us. Which comes into contact, like before, with, you know, each individual's... Uh, purchase on the world now it transforms it's no longer like the way of the world it is now the um way of the heart heart of the matter sorry so the the matter in hand comes into contact with the heart of the matter 
or what used to be called the way of the heart, or just a few minutes ago that I've already slipped up. So now that puts us into the next sub-sub-chapter that's going to be dealing with laws, or what do laws mean in a world where everyone is still kind of separated or working through this separation, trying to make it a universal. And this sub-sub-chapter is called Reason as Lawgiver. So this universal self that turns matter in hand, the matter in hand into an ethical substance, and consciousness it is, uh, and as consciousness of it is an ethical consciousness. So what was considered now the universal, the matter in hand, the thing that connects us, is taken as an ethical substance, and to be conscious of it is that ethical consciousness. So we craft laws then around these ideas. But Hegel says, wait a second, because what the hell is a law? How can we claim that this law is, you know, inalienable, that it is universal or whatever? So he gives us an example. He says, what if I said there should be a law that said everyone ought to speak the truth? So Hegel says that that's a terrible law because what, so while it might sound good to us on paper, Hegel says it essentially claims to be a universal, that is everyone should speak the truth, but then he questions whether or not that's possible when not everyone might know the truth, nor when the, you know, a truth might be relative, for, for example. So laws don't exist like out there that we can just, you know, they don't come to us from God that we can then apply to our single world. Uh, the closest that that happens is under like fascist, fascism or totalitarianism or rule under a single being. But when we're dealing with all these individuals, it's very difficult to say that there are these laws that just kind of exist. So we can't arrive at reason through laws. But Hegel says that while we might not know what laws are, we can still think that there can be laws and we can still imagine them. And for him, that's what's interesting. He's like, okay, we might not know what the laws are, but we certainly know that there are laws. We're oddly fascinated with that. So there must be something interesting even about that process, which puts us here into the next sub-sub-chapter titled uh, Reason as Testing Laws. So I want to read a little thing here from 259, where he says that law-giving and the testing of laws have proved to be futile means that both when taken singly and in isolation, or singly and in isolation, are merely unstable moments of the ethical consciousness, and the movement in which they appear has the formal meaning that the ethical substance thereby exhibits itself as consciousness. So it's futile to test laws, to say like, oh, are the, these are the true laws and the false laws. And laws, if they were to be submitted to, would demand a foregoing of individualism that, you know, we've been trying to work towards, which would just move us into kind of like essentialism, where things are only what they appear on the uh, outside if we were to contrast with that uh, law-giving system. Okay, that wraps up these two chapters, that is, uh, reason and self-consciousness. Okay, hope you got something out of it. Uh, I want to thank my patrons like Liam, Nicholas, James, and Ramona. You're helping me keep this going. Uh, and if anyone else can contribute, that'd be great. Uh, I'd like to keep doing this for as long as I can. And, you know, money helps. Uh, but yeah, I hope you got something out of it. If you have any questions, you know, the comments are there. 
if I did anything wrong or I mischaracterized anything, I'd love to know it because, you know, to be fully honest, like this stuff is really difficult and I'm trying to be really, um, you know, to give a fair account of what is going on. And I know at times I might be unfaithful to what Hegel's doing, but so let me know if there's anything. But I'll see you next week. Till then, take care, be safe, uh, peace out.